The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're talking about diminished ovarian reserve and new strategies to address it, and we've invited Dr. Sonia Raiz. Dr. Raiz is a PhD, and she's currently a principal investigator at EV Foundation. She has published very important publications in this particular area of diminished ovarian reserve, and she's currently working on some of the most cutting-edge approaches to address this issue, which is why we wanted to have her on to speak about her latest research. Dr. Eray, thank you so much for making time to be with us today. Thank you, Andres, for giving me this, uh, this opportunity to talk about what we are doing on the innovation department of um, Hebe Foundation, and also about my research work. Of course, always a pleasure to have you on. <laughs> let's let's get started by the, by the very beginning, a little bit of a review um, as, as an introduction. What is primary ovarian insufficiency, diminished ovarian reserve? What are some of the difference? Well, they are very related one to each other because diminished ovarian reserve uh, includes different diagnoses like the poor responder patients, which didn't uh, achieve uh, what we expect from age or the ovarian reserve after ovarian stimulation. And also patients that be due to different causes, like can be an ovarian surgery, a genetic um, <clears throat> mutation or whatever, they have a reduced uh, follicular pool. And on the, uh, like the worst ovarian scenario that we can found is the premature ovarian insufficiency, or as it's already known in the past, like premature ovarian failure, which are young patients. They, they should be younger than 40, which uh, start developing a premature menopause. Even if by age, they don't have to. They are like a progressive decline of the fertility and, um, and the ovarian reserve. And at the end, they, they start menopause earlier than expected. Right. And this, this obviously poses a, an important challenge to, to female fertility. And it's, of course, a lot of efforts have been devoted to, to studying this. Several animal models have been described to study, to study primary ovarian insufficiency, but diminished ovarian reserve is a little bit more challenging. And I, I'm aware you recently developed an animal model that could be very helpful in understanding DOR. Can you tell us a little bit more about this challenge and about the model you developed and why it's so important? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, as I told you, diminished ovarian reserve includes very different patients because we've got uh, older women that they've got due to age, uh, diminished ovarian reserve, but also includes younger women that have uh, 
<clears throat> a more reduced ovarian reserve than expected by age. So at the end, we have patients, young patients with lower amount of follicles, but also uh, that can be due to very different causes. Also, older patients with uh, diminished ovarian reserve, but due to age. So it's hard to have like a very specific model for that. So what we did was it's easier to develop a model for POI, which uh, has no ovarian function at all, but sometimes it's more tricky for the diminished ovarian reserve. And we are uh, experiencing an increasing amount of patients with diminished ovarian reserve due to different causes coming to our clinics. So we need to develop uh, new options also for them. And it's hard to study. So we decide uh, based on our, in the past we designed by using chemotherapy agents, a POI model. So we decide to use a 10 times lower dose of chemotherapy for trying to induce this uh, kind of diminished ovarian reserve which means that we have less follicles, but the ovaries are still working. So this was very helpful because there's uh, a lot of knockout animal models targeting different proteins, but they are very, very specific for a specific cause. So what we try to do with this chemotherapy-induced uh, animal model for DOR, which is not perfect, but allow us to have a kind of... Um, model representing what we are seeing on the women. And that's why we felt that it's important not only having knockout models and POI models, but also something slight, uh, you know, slightly uh, better from the reproductive outcomes, but very different from the wild type or, or the normal conditions. Right. So it seems you were trying to create a more sort of general model of DOR instead of tailored to a specific reason. And I, I understand you had good success in, in doing so. What were your results of, for this model? Well, uh, we published, I think it was like two or three years ago, uh, a paper where we uh, developed both the DOR and the POI models by using a standard and a reduced dose of uh, chemotherapy agents because we were working on the fertility preservation field for female uh, cancer patients a long time ago. So we learned that one of the main causes uh, developing the POI in, in women is the, the use of uh, chemotherapy drugs. So we take advantage of this bad thing to try to develop our model. And we found that even if it's not perfect, we are reproducing or mimicking pretty well the, what we found on the diminished ovarian reserve women because our animal model still have a menstrual cycle, which in the animal is estral cycle, is slightly different, but it's not like the regular one. So they start to have longer time for periods. We also see... Uh, very significant reduce on the, for example, when we stimulate the animals on the uh, oocyte collection or on the production of embryos and even on the spontaneous pregnancies um, rate. So it's pretty similar to what we found on the diminished ovarian reserve women. And it was very useful to, to try to, you know, to test the different strategies in this general model of DOR. Yeah, it is, it is quite 
kind of mimicking the, the natural progression of DOR. And it's it's interesting. I, I've done some work in POI where we use chemotherapy to induce POI in mice. And it is, you're right, that it is quite fulminant. It's, there, there's kind of no middle ground. And it's, it's, it's very interesting that you achieve this kind of um, natural mimicking of, of DOR, which is, which is pretty impressive. One of the new strategies that can be studied and that, that are being studied to treat women with, with DOR, one of them is very promising, and it's the ASCOT technique. And you'll tell us what ASCOT means in a second. You published an article about this in 2018 describing the technique. Where did the idea originate from? First of all, what is ASCOT and what, where did the idea originate from? Yeah, well, the ASCOT came from the autologous stem cell ovarian transplant. And uh, this study was, was focused on a population of uh, poor responder women, according to the Bologna criteria. So we've got women uh, younger than 40 that they do not respond to ovarian stimulation as, as they should. So um, this came, I think it was around... 2013, for the first time, when uh, Kawamura's group published that uh, they achieved the follicular rescue in women with POI by using the in vitro activation and the ovarian fragmentation. Because this was the proof of concept that if the ovary contains follicles, even if they are not uh, working or they are not, not able to ovulate, these follicles can be rescued by different strategies. And at that time, there was also this, um, all this project developed in, in EBI by Dr. Carlos Simon and uh, Xavi Santamaria, working on the use of stem cells for trying to recover the endometrium of patients with thin endometrium and Asherman. So this was Dr. Pather that made the connection of everything and we think about, okay, maybe we can also rescue these follicles by providing an adequate ovarian niche by using the stem cells because um, they, you know, they, they secrete positive growth factory uh, molecules and they also help to ovarian vascularization, which is key for the development of follicles. So we decide to just put together these two uh, previous uh, papers in, in the ASCOT project. And the, I, I love that story. I like to know kind of how, how things came to be behind the scenes. And about the, about the ASCOT technique itself, can you tell us about what it entails and tell us a little bit about the study you did in, in the one you published in 2018? Sure. Uh, we, <clears throat> we have a very close uh, collaboration with the uh, hematology department in Hospital La Fe in Valencia because there's where Dr. Pellicer established the fertility preservation program for cancer patients. So we learn from them how to uh, mobilize the bone marrow donor stem cells from the bone marrow and collect them through the biopheresis, through the peripheral uh, circulation. We take advantage of all that they have learned in the past to try to obtain samples for bone marrow transplant from healthy donors. So we use exactly the same mobilization protocol that, than they use in that program. This makes the bone marrow stem cells to proliferate during a five-day treatment with granulocyte colony stimulating factor 
and to mobilize to, to peripheral blood where they can be easily collected. Because in the past, all the studies using stem cells for treating ovaries or other uh, techniques, they use the very invasive technique for collection because they need to puncture into the iliac crest. So we are avoiding all this more invasive part by using this pharmacologic treatment. And once the cells are collected, we infuse them by intraarterial catheteries into the ovarian artery. One of the main differences with the ASCOT and the, the study by Dr. Simon using the stem cells for the endometrium is that we, did, uh, we didn't select any specific population of the stem cells. So we are, because in the bone marrow, you've got most of the stem cells are from the hematopoietic uh, lineage, but we also have mesenchymal stem cells. So we take advantage of all these uh, circulating cells to try to have a more broad spectrum of uh, effects, not only the ones at the blood uh, vessel level. So the study was uh, developing an initial population of 20 poor responder women. They just made the technique and we made a follow-up for the ovarian reserve biomarkers during six months because the main outcome of the study at the initial was to evaluate if the follicles were able to grow by, you know, promoted by this uh, stem cell transplant. And we realized that they grow. In fact, um, the first follicular wave that we detected was two weeks after the, the stem cell infusion, which make us think about that apart from activating primordial follicles, which was the, the hypothesis of, of Kawamura's for POI women, we are also avoiding the ones growing under, undergoing attrition. So we are providing this, uh, you know, a follicle when it starts to grow, it requires a lot of blood vessels, nutrients, oxygen, etc. So by recovering the ovarian niche, we were able to create a, a, an appropriate niche for growth. And that was uh, one of the main findings because we were not expecting this uh, early response. And the nice thing that we observed that uh, that 81% of our patients improved the ovarian reserve biomarkers, both the antrafollicular count and the anti-mullerian hormone levels during this period. And there's patients that get pregnant by embryo transfer but we also observed several spontaneous pregnancies, which is like the best outcome that you can do with this type of studies. And we even have patients having uh, two pregnancies. So since that once the ovary reactivates, this effect is not only for one point, so can be maintained in, in time. That is amazing. And it's, it's so, so interesting how you can reactivate those follicles. And like you said, that kind of reestablish the niche for them to grow to begin with. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the sort of the, the resulting effects of your publication. Some other experiments and studies have, have stemmed from this. What, what are they, what is currently being worked on that stemmed from your paper? Well, there's, <clears throat> one thing which is important to highlight, uh, and you already just told a minute ago, that it's we are reactivating follicles. So we are not creating something new. And this is important because the bone marrow stem cells, they are adult stem cells. And one of the main mechanisms 
for this type of cells is what is called the paracrine signaling. So the stem cell can differentiate into another type of cells, but the paracrine mechanism implies that these cells are secreting positive growth factors that stimulate the neighbor cells to grow and to proliferate. And in fact, in the, uh, in the ASCOT study, we correlate the presence of two of these uh, stem cell secreted factors with a positive ovarian response. The first one was the thrombospondin, which is a key regulator for angiogenesis, which is very important. In fact, uh, it has been already described that women with diminished ovarian reserve, POI, and poor ovarian response, they have a lower amount of blood vessels on the ovary, and that's why the ovary became fibrotic. And the second factor was the fibroblast growth factor two, which is uh, involved in cell proliferation, but also in folliculogenesis. So that's what uh, make us think about that. Maybe there's some specific of these uh, cell factors that are the ones inducing the, the response. So we start to analyze all the components that uh, we have on the apheresis after the stem cell mobilization to try to establish a protein profile of these um, stem cells. And this opened a new, a completely new uh, research line trying to identify the specific proteins because uh, what we are looking for is to less invasive, more effective and more directed treatments. So if we are able to identify the, the real effectors, maybe we don't need to infuse the stem cells and can be easily done in every clinic. So you don't need a special OR for the uh, intraarterial catheterings, for example. So based on that, we start to first analyze the components and try to relate them, the, the ones that were uh, upregulated or downregulated after the treatment to try to identify which ones are involved in the ovarian effects. And then uh, it came also, which it's very relevant right now, uh, it's the platelet-rich plasma. You know, it's pretty similar because it's based on the factors that are enclosed into the platelets. So we decide that maybe we can combine both technologies because the more the better for the growth factors. So this uh, is what we are doing now. In fact, uh, we published a paper in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology like two months ago, where we demonstrate in both the, uh, our animal model of DOR and POI, but also in uh, human tissues, xenografted into immunodeficient mice, that the combination of both the stem cell secreted factors and the PRP factors improve the effects for the, this uh, ovarian rescue. <clears throat> in fact, for these papers, for this paper, we also try uh, the umbilical core blood because you know that uh, the, the stem cells present in this type of blood are like the most undifferentiated ones and they are expected to produce like the broad spectrum of uh, regeneration. And in that sense, in the ovary, we see very similar effects between the stem cell factors and the umbilical cord blood ones. But the, the main advantage of using the bone marrow stem cell factors is that you can use your own ones. So you don't need 
to make a compatibility test or you don't need a facility to, I mean, to obtain the umbilical cord blood, which is sometimes pretty tricky. So we, we decided to, to develop this strategy. And right now we are opening a randomized clinical trials for trying to test this technology that we have called the four-step passcode because at the end it consists in, in four steps in, uh, in POI women. I, I wanted to ask you actually about that, that randomized control trial and that um, how, what can you tell? I know it's, it's currently underway, but what can you tell us about it? What, how is it working? Um, what's the size? Where are you doing this? Well, we just started like less than a month ago. So we are recruiting the first patients is going to be uh, 42 women younger than 39 with POI uh, diagnosed following the ESRO criteria. So they should have FSH levels higher than 25, at least four months of amenorrhea. So a proper POI diagnose. And what we are doing is they uh, will be randomized to control or to receive the first, uh, the first step passcode technique which consists in a first step of stem cell mobilization by a five-day treatment of GCSF. Once the patient's blood is enriched in stem cells and therefore in the stem cell secreted factor, we are going to collect 20 mLs of this uh, rich blood and we will prepare the PRP from this uh, previously enriched uh, blood. So by doing the PRP, we are going to concentrate these factors which is the second step. And then we are going to activate the PRP, which means that we are going to break the platelets. So we are going to release these uh, additional uh, growth factors already present there. And finally, we are going to do like the fourth step, which is the direct ovarian injection. And this is an advantage because the intervention for injecting into the um, ovary this, this uh, plasma that we have prepared is pretty similar to the one made for oocyte collection. But instead of aspirate the oocyte, we are going to inject a small amount of this uh, concentrate into different points of the ovary. The patients undergoing the control arm, they would do a three-month follow-up. So this would provide very useful data for how a POI women undergoing a two-week follow-up, they would respond because one of the, I mean, you know, you cannot leave a POI women without any intervention at all. But we need this data because all the studies proposing techniques, they are comparing with these um, cumulative pregnancy rates that have been described on the literature, but depending on the cohort, they are very variable. So we need to be sure what happened. So after doing this three-month follow-up, the control ones will undergo a second phase of the study where they will receive also the treatment. So in all patients, if we detect follicles, they will undergo ovarian hyperstimulation to try to recover own eggs for having a baby, if it works. That sounds, sounds amazing, and I, I like how you know, you kind of distilled the idea of ASCOT and PRP to be almost similar and and, and kind of additive and, and how that this could work very, very well together. 
And the the other question I had for you, with all of these options being explored and with what you've already told us, how do you think this area of diminished ovarian reserve POI will look 10 years from now? Do you think we'll be distilling specific growth factors depending on what's going on for each person? Do you, where do you think where do you think we're headed? Well, I expect that we can uh, give all the POI and the Minister of Iron Reserve good news because there's uh, many, many groups all over the world working in trying to develop new strategies for them. Because right now we are focused on the POI women, which is a very specific population. It only affects 1% of women at fertile age. But we need to think about that <clears throat> right now, and this is something that is not going to change in the next years, most women due to all the socioeconomic changes that our society has experienced, start to think about motherhood when they are, from the ovarian point of view, pretty old. So we felt fantastic, but after 35, our ovarian reserve progressively declines. So there's no more time. So right now we are developing strategies for this specific group of patients, but if we find something maybe we can also help all these uh, advanced uh, maternal age women, which is going to be a very increasing population in, in the next years. There's, we are focused on this specific uh, identification of proteins, but there are other groups working in other ways to activate the follicles, like I told Dr. Kawamura and also the Sardia from EV London on the ovarian fragmentation. And maybe in the future, we will realize that not all the techniques are going to work for all women. But as the, study, as the studies uh, get published and we can properly analyze all the data, we can maybe identify which of the specific techniques are going to help any specific group of patients. But until these technologies are developed, it's hard to, to predict. But hopefully we will have all this information in the future. Well, I think you're you're definitely headed in the right direction, and it, it's so promising and so exciting to read everything you've put out, Doctor Erai. Thank you so so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Andres. Thank you. This has been another episode of FertilityPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week.